Okay. I think. Am I on? Am I on? Hello. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome. And this morning, uh, we're going to take a break from Luke for quite a little while here. In the summertime, I kind of like to just do other things because people are coming and going and and I've been wanting to do a series on just singles in the church for a long time because it really relates to all of us. It relates to parents, to young people, to the singles, you know, college students, up. Um, we're all affected by some of the things that are affected them. But I want to address them specifically. And so starting this week and continuing on in the weeks to come, with the exception of next week, um, the Resolved Conference is next week, and many of our unmarried people will be gone to that. And so I thought, well, what can I teach on just for one week? And so I'm going to preach on the rapture um, next week, just because I've always wanted to do that here. And uh, so I will preach on the rapture next week. So we'll find out whether we're going up and when's that happening. And uh, and then we'll continue on so that, the you know, none of the singles miss any of the stuff in the series. So that's what's kind of um, happening. I think, uh, you know, uh, we all realize here that the children's building isn't finished yet. And so some of the younger people are here and I'm going to be as discreet as I possibly can. Um, I won't be using any words that aren't in the Bible. Bible. And so uh, if you, you'll hear me say some metaphors and you may think, hmm. Um, anyways, you should be able to clue into what's going on here, but I'm not going to get real graphic or anything. But the church today and uh, the elders are seeing this, the pastors are seeing this, we're kind of getting swept away by the world. Kind of the average thing that happens is when, when the society begins to go down, the church kind of prides itself in being two steps behind. So we aren't as bad as the world, but we're following it down into its mire. And a lot of times we don't wake up until we're, we're chin deep in the sewer and then we realize, oh no, what am I doing? You know, we, we just have a way of just going down with the world instead of taking a stand and maintaining that high road. You know, in the 60s, the, with feminism came the sexual revolution and uh, uh, the pharmaceutical revolution and uh, drugs and alcohol. You know, alcohol was just getting old hat. He went on to the drug and, you know, let's do drugs and alcohol. Of course, you never give up a vice. You just add a new vice to it. And uh, they didn't realize that that this society that was just groping for God, that's what was missing. The drug they were looking for was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But when you don't know that, you don't know where to look there. As a matter of fact, it just seems pretty silly that that being religious is what they see it as, is getting religion that would actually fulfill your life and give you peace and joy and purpose and meaning and, and really bring lasting happiness they just it's hard to believe that that would be the case but that is the case of course morality went off the charts it became evident that uh, uh, the sexual revolution was really the sexual de-evolution society became increasingly more intolerant tolerant of biblical morality and what what 50 years ago would have been shocking now christians don't even raise an eyebrow at it you know, people used to get thrown into jail for adultery. You move in with somebody and you weren't married, it would be a scandal. You know, you'd have the whole city council coming down on you. 
But now, if you maintain purity as the Bible prescribes, there's something wrong with you. You're warped. That's abusive. A number of mainstream universities now have co-ed dorms. We're not talking about a guy's room and a girl's room and a guy's room and a girl's room in the same building. We're talking about the university purposely putting a girl in a room with a guy in beds next to each other without telling the parents. And they don't have to tell the parents because the kids are adults and the kids, of course, raging hormones is just becoming a cesspool of sin. The biblical role of women has been so thoroughly corrupted that most women think that making money and having a career so that they can buy stuff is more important than raising their children. That is the standard mindset now. That children are really a nuisance. They're an inconvenience. And so we get abortions or we drop them off at the high school or leave them at the daycare. Children are being aborted at a phenomenal rate. In some countries around the world, their actually population is decreasing. They're destroying themselves. Modesty has been lost. Even in the church, we're constantly dealing with that modesty, modesty. But you know, the fashions are so pulling. They're just pulling on women. Be this way, be this way, be this way. And the world is just going down. And pretty soon, even Christians are getting sucked into it. And so this is kind of all coming at our young people at just a scary rate. And in the 90s, just, you know, it just seemed that by the time the 90s came, things couldn't get any worse. And then the Internet was invented, you know, the worldly wide web. And where alcohol and drugs have slain their millions, the Internet is presently slaying its billions People who would never purchase a pornographic magazine or go see a pornographic movie um, because they wouldn't be seen in public doing that can now in the safety and privacy of their own home or on their cell phone or in their office or on their laptop or their PDA download whatever degree of carnality the mind can imagine. The world is so empty it's so lost. It's so desperate to try and find some meaning to life that it is groping in the darkness to feel good. That's why there is a, as it is just, okay, we'll get drunk. Okay, we'll do drugs. Okay, we'll be immoral. Okay, we'll do whatever. We're trying to feel good. We just, we can't just be automatons to just go to work, come back, go to work, come back. I mean, there has to be more than life than just eating and sleeping and working. And it's true. But they don't know what it is. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. And I just want to point this out to you. Romans chapter 8. This is the really the pinnacle of the book of Romans. He's talked about how all men are sinners and how salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. That we're justified by believing in Jesus. He talks about um, just the struggle we have trying to walk with Christ and we're dealing with the flesh. The flesh described as, as our bodies and those desires because your body wants to be pampered. There's no end to it. Your body loves to be pampered. And if you let it have control, it will destroy you with pampering. And so in chapter 8, he begins to contrast this 
dichotomy, this antithesis between what God wants, the Holy Spirit wants, and what our flesh cries out for. And notice what he says. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For the law could not do weak as it was to the flesh. God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering of for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Notice the flesh, flesh, flesh three times in verse three. There is this this fallen part of us, our body, our physical being that just craves for sin, for pampering, for anything that will make it feel good. Contrasted with that is verse 2 says it's the law of the spirit the christians who have the spirit within them pulling them in the direction of the glory of god look at verse 4 so um or verse 5 go down to verse 5 well in verse 4 so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit notice that the christian is not one who walks in the flesh but the spirit that is he lets the spirit of god direct him by the word of god in the direction of the glory of god verse 5 for those who are according to the flesh that is unbelievers set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit for the mindset in the flesh is death, but the mindset in the spirit is life and peace because the mindset in the flesh is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this is what we see in the world today. We have a whole bunch of people who are of the flesh. And so they're walking according to the flesh. And so it's no wonder that they're just trying to feel good. They're doing drugs they're doing alcohol. They're doing whatever it is they can engaging in every sort of immorality you can think of. And they're trying to just feel good. They just want to feel good. They don't know why they exist. They don't know why they're living. I mean, just do it this week. Just talk to somebody at work and say, by the way, why do you exist? And just see what they say. It's like, what? They don't know. They don't even know. I mean, you'd think, you know, it's, why do you have a car? Why do you have a, a stove? I mean, you could all answer those, right? We have a microwave because we put popcorn in there. <laughs> and it's quick, you know? We have a stove because it cooks things, a coffee pot to make pot, uh, coffee. Well, why, why are you? I don't know. That is a huge issue. When you don't know why you are, then you just are run by your flesh into whatever you can to try and make yourself feel good. And now we have so many ways the world is trying to tempt us to drag us into immorality. I mean, you got to look sexy. You got to talk sexy. You got to, you know, take drugs to perform erotically. You know, you, you got file sharing and webcams and cell phones and thumb drives and a host of other gadgets to try and pump that stuff into your head. It's on all the magazine covers. You know, older parents just clueless uh, about the use of new technology and that with all good intentions, they want to be a blessing to their kids. You know, and I want their kids to be grown up as dinosaurs in an age of technology. They give them these, these things. And of course, at school, by the seventh grade, they have a doctorate in the use of those gadgets. Have you ever sat down, you get a new cell phone, and you know, you've got your glasses on, you're adjusting, and you're looking at the manual. 
and you're kind of got the cell phone in one hand. You're kind of like, uh, you're kind of looking back and forth and reading and you're thinking, somebody who didn't speak English wrote this and you're trying to figure out how to use it. And then your, 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 your sixth grader comes over and goes, dad, let me see that. <laughs> Is that what you're trying to do? And you look at him and say, hey, how'd you do that? Well, it looks like this. Oh, look at here. You oh, you got these games. Hey, give me that thing back. So, Dad, you know your phone does this? It's like, no, I didn't know it did. Oh, oh, cool. You know, all of a sudden you say, don't change the settings on it. It's dead. It's not going to hurt you. It's a cell phone. They just know how to do it. It's just intuitive. And what's happening is, as parents, with all good intentions find out too late that they've handed to their child or young adult the very technology that has destroyed their their purity, their minds, and their hearts. Parents wanting their children to be on the cutting edge of what's happening, they install computers, you know, wireless devices that can access satellites and the internet or whatever in their rooms on their person. Uh, parents come up and go, yeah, you know, I got my kids, you know, I got them internet capabilities. I said, did you know your kids can look at pornography on their cell phone? They go, they can? They don't even know that. Well, that's what's on the internet, right? I mean, you know, it can be accessed. You think when you're all, when no one's around, that they aren't, they're just never going to do that because it's just not interesting to them. Give them unrestricted email privileges, no spam filter, no blocking images, no tracking their web activity. Give them a MySpace account, a Facebook account, you know. Give them a Twitter account. Let them download pictures. Give them an iPod. You think they're using that iPod for music, right? They're for music, right? Oh, and for pictures and for full-length movies. Really? Yeah. I mean, a lot of parents would be shocked to find out what's on their kid's cell phone or Electrical widget. And if parents have put their children in danger by doing this, it's like like taking your child and building your house next to a, a prison full of sexual predators and then creating a doorway from your child's room into there so that they can go in there and visit the predators whenever they want. You think, well, I would never do that. No, you would do worse. You give them a computer. With no safeguards, a cell phone with no safeguards. And the problem isn't just with youth. And we're doing singles, so I'm kind of addressing it there. But it's with everyone, every class and every age. Pastors all over are being disqualified because they're falling into internet pornography or whatever. And we need to realize the Bible says that in the last times, things will proceed from bad to worse. And so the church needs to hold back. We can use the technology. The technology is not the problem. It's the unrestrained, unprudent, uncautious use of that technology, which is not being directed by the word of God. I mean, does it kind of just kind of freak you that the L.A. Convention Center has pornography conventions? I mean, that's kind of shocking. Well, it used to be shocking. Fornication used to be shocking to Christians. Now that's like, oh, yeah, a lot of people live together. I guess that's the way it is. See, we, we've lost the shock factor. And in many cases, we've fallen into the sin. I mean, we don't throw people in jail anymore for adultery, but they used to. If you used to 
take TV now and let somebody 100 years ago watch TV for an hour, they'd take a rock and throw it through the screen. They think, man, that thing is, that's from the pit of hell. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, you know, against technology. I like technology. I'm a gadget guy. That's why I got my degrees in electronics technology, man. I think it's cool. But not to do evil with. You can use technology for a lot of good things. But listen, the church of Jesus Christ must maintain its purity. We have to maintain our purity. If we lose our purity, we become a harlot church. We can't offer acceptable worship to God if we're living in sin. We have to maintain our purity. It has to be that way. We can't make an impact on the world if we're just like the world. If friendship with the world is hostility towards God, then what is mimicking the world? It's an abomination. There's a cell phone right there. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. I want to just show you. Paul, Paul has a great section here because he talks about the progression of men. He, what he's doing in this section is he's talking about how societies, having reject God, slowly decay into the worst imaginable sins possible. If the gospel doesn't intervene, if the truth of God doesn't intervene, then you just go from bad to worse. There is a decay, a progressing decay into sin. And so he's trying to set up in these first three chapters that all men are sinners, regardless of class, regardless of kind. And so here he's kind of talking about the sequence of events that plague a culture, a nation. And he says this, starting in verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So God is holy. His wrath is kindled against sin. As sin increases, so does the intensity of his wrath. God reveals himself to all men, but all men suppress that truth and unrighteousness. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. I mean, it's apparent that the universe didn't come from nothing, that everything that exists didn't come from nothing that exists. I mean, that is so basically apparent. But yet, how many people deny that truth? Most people. No, first there was nothing and then everything. And then everything got together and had a convention and decided to create itself into different other things and make itself better than it was before and something else better and to keep on progressing upward until here we are. I mean, micro and macro engineered qualities built into creation proclaim that there is a creator God. Men are without excuse. Somebody may say, well, I don't believe in God, but you know this. They know God exists because God says he has put a knowledge of himself in their hearts and outside of them. They have internal proof and external proof that God exists. It's just that they suppress it in unrighteousness. Look at verse 21. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of of the in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Here we see the evil exchange. God says, here I am. I'll give you my law in your hearts. I'll give you a conscience. I'll let you see in creation that how powerful I am, how wonderful I am, the extent of my magnitude and immensity. And then men take all that truth and they suppress it in righteousness. They exchange what God has given them for creation itself. They begin to worship creation. They do it in different ways. You know, they, they worship animals and statues and idols and other men and other women and self and things and all those things. And notice the consequences of suppressing the truth. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. When you reject God, when you reject him in the world and you begin to turn to the world to find meaning in life, God gives you over. As a form of judgment, he lets you go. And then you go into impurity. This is called, this is sexual impurity. Lusts of their hearts to impurity. Thus people begin to pursue immorality. They're trying to find meaning in life. And so they pursue immorality. And their bodies are dishonored among them. Recent surveys have discovered that 70% of singles today engage in physical immorality to one kind or another weekly. If you put in mental immorality that is pornography gained on the internet, it's near 100%. It's a huge problem in the church. It's a greater problem in the world. Look at verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Notice they did that before. Now they're still doing it. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gives them over to degrading passions. Now they're doubly given over. Once they get into immorality and they keep rejecting and the truth doesn't intervene and they don't understand the reason for their existing, then they're given over to degrading passions. You say, what are those? Look at verse 26, the middle of verse 26. For... Their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons a due penalty of their error. When a society turns away from God, they are first given over to sexual impurity. When they keep on that track, they're given over to degrading passions. Homosexuality. Finally. If they keep going down that route, what is the general state of the society? Look at verses 28 and following. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here they are exchanging again. God gave them over. This is the third giving over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, know they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. In the mid-90s, about 17, 17% of Americans thought homosexual sin was acceptable. Now, today, 90% think it's acceptable. 
we, the younger generation is just plunging into it headlong. Recently in a public high school, 14 miles from here, the student body elected and the faculty and administration approved of an openly homosexual young man to be elected as prom queen. Prom queen. I didn't make a mistake there. A young man grows up in a home. He's got an overbearing mother and a passive father. And the roles that God designed are reverse. So he begins to see things in kind of a distorted way. They're not right. And this affects him, but he doesn't have God. He doesn't know the truth. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to go. As he grows up, he begins to not understand how to be a man because his dad wasn't a man. His dad didn't act like he should have. His mom didn't act like she should have. He plunges himself into immorality. He has a bad experience. It just doesn't seem to work out. He just doesn't know what to do, but he's hungry. His flesh is crying out. He wants fulfillment. He wants fulfillment. He wants to find something that's going to make him happy. He's living only for himself, for his own selfish ends, because that's all he knows. He's approached by another man. They commit indecent acts. He feels guilty at first, but he thinks, you know what? I'm getting what I want. He doesn't have to figure out the opposite sex. He doesn't have to use self-control. He, he can be self-serving. You know, women are crockpots and men are microwave ovens. So he just finds another microwave oven. And soon he's enslaved to degrading passions and he's miserable. You know, a woman grows up and she's sexually abused by her father or brother or neighbor or boyfriend and she's angry and frustrated and she doesn't know how to deal with it. She doesn't know what to do. He just holds this in and she's miserable. And she just doesn't ever want that to ever happen again and rightly so, but she doesn't know how to cope. She doesn't have God's word. She doesn't have God's truth. She doesn't know how to deal with it. And so wanting to protect herself, she gravitates towards women. She, she finds another crock pot that she feels safe with. She's getting what she wants, the way she wants it. Doesn't have to put up with a man and all those weird things that men do that have hurt her in the past. And it doesn't take long before the sin that they hoped would bring them happiness makes them more miserable than ever. And then they get angry. And then they get despairing. And then they get depressed. Nothing seems to work. What is life? Surely it can't just be eating, sleeping, and working. They don't know. They don't know how to escape. And people desperate to find meaning in life and peace and fulfillment are trying anything the world throws at them to gain lasting joy. And of course, Satan is the God of this world. So everything he throws at them is against God and for their destruction. And these people need Christ and they need forgiveness and they need friends who really love them. They need to be treated correctly. They need to figure out how to be a woman and how to be a man how to be a responsible citizen, how to find joy in life, where to go for peace, where to go for happiness, where true contentment can be found. They need rescued from their slavery to sin and the world. And that's why God has raised up Calvary Bible Church in this city to rescue, to rescue them. You know, and many many of us have come from these sins. I mean, you know, there's either sinners who are saved or sinners who are not. You know what Paul says? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verse 9 and 10, now he's talking to the Corinthians. They were having lawsuits and suing one another before unbelievers. And he says, no, this is wrong. Don't do it. And then he just says, starting in verse 9 of verse 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be deceived. Don't be unrighteous. Don't be suing one another. Do not be deceived. Then he just gives a sampling of sins. He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then this cool little line there. Verse 11, such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were... He says, sanctified, that is, you were separated from your sin. But you were justified, declared to be right in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. In other words, you've been rescued, Corinthians. The church at Corinth was just like any other church. It's full of, you know, ex-fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and swindlers and drunkards. I mean, here we are. We're all a bunch of ex-somethings. Unless you grew up in the church and came to Christ at a very young age, you've been rescued out of some sort of depravity. And this is what the church is for. Because Christ gives people the reason to live. He changes them. He turns them into new creatures. He gives them meaning and joy and helps them sleep at night in peace. And the world has changed so rapidly over the last hundred years that people just don't know how to cope with the changes. And we're losing our youth. I mean, think about this. Nine out of 10 young people growing up right now, nine out of 10 of your children and my children walk away from the Lord. Is that okay with you? That's not okay with me. And it's not okay with God that we just let them go. We need to battle for what's right and do what's right and not just kind of be victims of the world. We need to take a stand. You say, well, why are we doing this? Why is the world had such a huge influence? You know, what is, how's the world getting at us? Primarily through the media, through the media. Parents just don't know how to raise their children in this media saturated world. Where so many devices invented today to get at your children. Recent studies have shown that the average person spends, now this is the average person, half or above and half or low this. This is the average, the middle of the road. Spends eight and a half hours a day in front, front of some sort of electrical media device. I know what you're thinking. Well, that's not me. Well, it probably is you. You're just in denial. The drug addict, I, I don't, I'm not that much of an addict. I don't drink that much. I mean, two cases a day isn't that much. And television itself takes up about six hours a day in the average person's life. Now, that's 42 hours a week. I, yeah, I just don't have time to read my Bible. I got to get my 42 hours of TV in. <laughs> I mean, that's how it is. And you say, well, you know, you want, oh, yeah, I don't watch a lot of TV. Come on. Come on. Some people set up their computers so 
they have a little TV screen in the store. So all day long, you know, you've probably seen this. You go to some business or something, you're talking to some receptionist and you hear this little, little squeaky voice. And you think, what is that? And you realize in the corner of the screen, there's this little TV and there's soap operas playing while she's talking to you. Just letting the world have access all day long through that device, you know, that for a large majority of its content is trashy. Others have instant messaging or Facebook or MySpace or news bulletins, and they have all these set up so you don't put these little links and they just remind you, bling, bling, email, you know. Oh, somebody just wrote something on your Facebook wall. You know, oh, somebody did this. Oh, somebody just said that. Oh, somebody news for him. Oh, somebody, you know, all day long, just kind of, hey, 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 hey. You get a spam and all these worldly images and things. And, you know, I don't know about you, but email for me is a burden. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm about like a millimeter away of just getting rid of email altogether. It's like, well, what all the people? Like, yeah, I'll be fine. I, you can go to hell without um, email, but surely it helps to escape it. There's so much trash on there. I, it eeks me when I get any junk mail that defiles my conscience. I just think I never want that again. And, you know, you think about it, you know, we've got just spam and chain emails and jokes and pictures and advertisements, and they're just like coming at us just in a flurry, and they never stop. And think about all that compared to how much biblical input you're getting. And you wonder why Christians are losing their discernment and falling into worldliness. I mean, we would communicate now in hectic bursts of grammar-stricken prose, bunch of weird little facts and blips and you know i didn't even know what it means you know you get some text message and you're reading it it's like what is that so what is that kids what does lol mean (laughs) oh that's laugh out loud dad it's like oh well thank you why don't you say it (laughs) where's the spelling and punctuation you know like a little code it sounds like a new language As of 2007, I couldn't find any good surveys on this. So this is old data. It's worse than this. In 2007, 2.5 billion text messages were sent every day. From those in the 13 to 17-year-old category, the average 13 to 17-year-old sent 1,742 text messages per month. On the average, It's it's gone up then. They just don't have accurate statistics. Those below 13-year-olds sent 428 texts every month. I mean, you have kids now have to go to the doctor because, you know, their their thumbs have fallen off. (laughs) They're getting, you know, arthritis in their thumbs from texting so much. You know, they come to their parents and go, yeah, I need a new cell phone. We just got you that six months ago. Yeah, I know, but I've rubbed the keys off of it. And then there's MySpace and Facebook and Twitter and blogs and discussion forums and, and, and all of these things are coming at us. And you know, where is the time when we're still and know that God is God? And we actually have some peace and some quiet and you know, you're talking to people now and you know how it is. It's like, hey, you know, I need to tell you something. You know, it's like, hold on a second. Okay, yeah, what was it again? Yeah, oh, yeah hold on a second. Yeah, okay, what was that again? It's like, listen, you know, I, my, my, my wife is like, just hold on a second. I got a text from my kids, you know. I mean, it's just, 
we're just getting bombarded with that stuff, right? It has happened all the time. And, you know, you talk to young people, I have 300 friends or 500 friends on Facebook. No, you don't. Those aren't your friends. Friends are people you have over. You talk to, you rebuke when they fall into sin. You do things with them. Okay, those are friends. What's on Facebook is you're giving permission to snoop at your cyber alter personality. It may be accurate, it may be not. But that's all you're doing. You can look at my stuff. That's all you're telling. And then a lot of times you put stuff on there and those people you give permission to, they take your stuff and they put it and they let other people see your stuff that you won't want to see your stuff. And you know, on the internet, you can be anything you want. I can stick any picture I want up there. I can say anything I want. I can pretend to be anything I want. There's no accountability. I can totally deceive you. Facebook and MySpace have erased the meaning of what it means to be a friend. And now a friend is someone who you merely give permission to snoop on you. In 2007, Australia figured that they lost $6 billion in production due to Facebook alone. That was in 2007. This is like three-year-old data. A recent article said, quote, experts have confirmed what parents and teachers already feared. Youngsters who use Facebook do worse in exams. A study showed that most pupils who regularly surf the social networking site underperform in tests, some by as much as a grade. The American research found that Facebook rituals, including building an empire of friends, adding applications, joining groups, and poking Uh, Other users can swallow up hours of study time. The study said that 68% of college students who use Facebook had a significantly lower grade point average than those who did not use the site. It is equivalent of the difference between getting an A and a B, said Mrs. Karpinski, who presents her findings this week at the annual conference of American Educational Research Association, end quote. And then let's not forget iPods and MP3 players. And, of course, that old archaic CD stuff and dinosaur radio. I mean, all of that stuff, in addition to magazines and books, you know, which is like super archaic. All that stuff is there, and it's all trying to get to us, right? It's all there, trying to communicate with us and keep us distracted and keep us busy. Do you feel busy? Yeah. You know, I I, I got an mp3 player i listen to you know sermons mostly but even then you know when i put that thing on i'm i disappear you know i got those earphones that cut out the noise so i can you know run my saw and still listen and so you know my wife has to like get in my field of view she can stand behind me you know and there's been times i turn around ah you know there she is you know, she has to kind of get in there and kind of wave her hands like, oh, you know, wife is communicating. One moment, you know, I'm listening to Spurgeon in London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And the next moment, I'm in my backyard talking to my wife. And just all of a sudden, it's like, oh, reality. And that's what happens with all these games. I mean, they're all designed to take you away. I mean, you could be in a, I've seen this all the time. Adults and people talking and tons of people around. And some kid's got earphones on. He's got a video game. And he's... Totally oblivious, has just checked out. It's like LSD, just gone in the midst of a crowd. No social interaction, no talking, nothing. I can do my own thing, please my own self, have things my own way. I don't have to talk with you. I don't have to interact with you. I don't have to listen to your opinions. I can just please myself. Electronic escape. 
The world is just telling us to do this more and more. And, you know, you only have so much time a day. And so if you let all of these things do it, and then you have the parents who, again, they're good intentions. They, they're thinking to themselves, well, we need to, we need to you know, help our child. And so let's, let's get them piano lessons and give them voice lessons and dance lessons and push them into sports and, and make sure they're involved in this club and that club and, and doing all these things. And pretty soon the kids are just saturated. They've got all these gadgets and all these games and they're trying to learn all these things. And their minds are very impressionable. So they're just like, their minds are just going forward. But what's missing? Knowing God. Knowing God. Which is the one thing that you can't do without. The one thing that brings you happiness, peace, contentment, joy, fulfillment, meaning in life. That most important thing is pushed aside. So the world can be stuffed in our heads. Knowing God is what's best for your children and should be the highest priority. It's like trying to gain happiness from the world is like drinking salt water. It just makes you more thirsty. It gives you momentary, you know, quenching, but then you're more thirsty than you ever were before. The world is just this huge minefield and all our youth are being raised up in it and most of them are getting blown up. And you know, and the cars and the computers and, and all these things are just, they're, they're just the, the world is just telling us these are the valuable things. These are the wonderful things. You know, you, you have parents, you know, think that, you know, if you make your kid do something, that's like child abuse. You know, you, you just sit on the couch and watch TV while we pay somebody to mow the lawn. You just do text messaging while I do your laundry. Play video games while I make your dinner. Let me do everything so you can just suck up the world, do your own selfish thing as much as possible. And I'm a bad parent if I teach you how to cook and clean and dig and sweep and act responsible. Do chores, you know, work like you're going to do the rest of your life if you're going to make it in the world. And then when they finally graduate from high school, we go, oh, well, you, I guess it's so expensive out there. You can keep living at home. And so we pay for their room and board and they get a job and then they take all the money they have and they use it on themselves to buy stuff, to eat out, to indulge themselves when they should be raising their own family. And you know, if you have the gift of singleness, great. The Bible says God gives the gift of singleness to a few people so that they can maintain undistracted devotion to the Lord and can do those certain ministries which are really difficult for married people to do. The rest, the normal thing is get married. Get married. And you know, we need to be raising our children to get married. Albert Moeller, in an article entitled Looking Back at the Mystery of Marriage, writes, quote, singleness is not a sin, but deliberate singleness and the part of those who know that they have not been given the gift of celibacy is, at best, a neglect of Christian responsibility. The problem may be simple sloth, personal impurity, a fear of commitment, or an unbalanced priority given to work and profession. 
on the part of men, it may also take the shape of a refusal to grow up and take the lead in courtship. There are countless Christian women who are prayerfully waiting for Christian men to grow up and take the lead. Where, what are these guys waiting for? The women, they're out there going, listen, I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm serving. Where are the guys? Well, they're, they're playing video games. They're eating out. They're saving up for a car. They're going to entertainment. They're enjoying themselves. They're finding ways to gratify those desires which God assigned to be gratified in marriage in sinful ways, and therefore they don't need a wife. In 1960, the average age of women being married was 20 years old. The average age of men was 23. Since 1960, the average age has jumped to 26 for females and 27 for males. The consequences of these delays are devastating as people just wait and wait and wait in those years when their hormones are raging and their passions are strong. And you know, I just want to get out there. I just want to make my career. I just want to do this. And so the Bible does address this. And we're going to be getting into it in weeks to come. It's not unclear. If you do not have that gift, get married. You go, well, you can't expect them to go to college and, and you know, be married. And co- Why not? My wife and I did it. We were dirt poor. We both worked part-time and both went to college. You go, yeah, but you can't do that in Southern California. Then why don't you tell it to all the people who are doing it at Calvary Bible Church right now that it's impossible? Well, yeah, you can't do it if you have want to have two new cars and a really nice house and a house full of furniture and and appliances bought on credit no you can't but if you want to set aside the world you can do it you can do it it's not negotiable it can happen and it's it's happening right now but you can't hold on to the world and do it and we need to realize that calvary bible church is receiving many singles who never grew up in a christian home they never grew up with any instruction they're coming out of the world and going now what I got issues, man. I got major issues, man. I've been in this sin or that sin or this sin. And man, I, I am messed up. So fix me. And so what are we going to do about it? We're just going to say, well, yeah, that person is unfit to be married. Well, then what are you doing about it? We got to do something about it. We can't just say, well, yeah, it's a problem. And then kind of ignore that group in the church. A while back, we did a little survey Pastor Carnes thought, you know, we ought to uh, do a survey before we kind of move ahead. We're having one of these elder planning meetings or something. So we decided to do a little survey to find out who is visiting Calvary Bible Church. The words, the world tells you this. Listen, preaching is out. You know, if you preach the word, if you take people through texts of the Bible and explain it and apply it to their life, the younger generation doesn't want anything to do with that except the Calvary Bible Church and every other church that's preaching the word. The number one group of people visiting Calvary Bible Church are between ages of 25 and 35, most of them single. Why is that? Because the world isn't satisfying them. It's destroying them. And they're beat up and they're coming out of the world because they want reality. They want to know why they exist. They want to know the truth and how to live for the glory of God. Churches that preach the word are exploding with young people. Okay, all that's introduction. The, the text, I just had to get off my chest. 
All that's introduction. And I just want to lay the landscape out here because this is the issue that I want to be addressing. And I want all of us to kind of see what's going on, to kind of look at the broad picture of what's going on, the trends in society, the technology. All of this is coming upon us and the world is trying to get into our lives and destroy us and lead us into sin and drag us to hell. And so as parents, as singles, as married people, we need to to say, you know what? We need to take a stand here. This technology is good in these areas, but not. It's a temptation for my children in these areas. So I'm going to put up these fences, these rules, these safeguards so that we can learn how to use the things that are acceptable in an acceptable way and to stay away from destroying ourselves and just living meaningless lives. And so we can go out in the world and tell people about Christ and tell them why they exist. They exist to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And you tell that to somebody who doesn't know God, that may be see so boring to them. It's just because they don't know Christ. But man, once you come to know Christ, that is it. And you sleep good at night and you have so many relationships with so many great people who you know love you and you love them and you're serving for eternal purposes and man, life gets great even in a wicked and perverse generation. This is what we want for our singles. And since the number one sin that seems to be eroding and attacking the singles and really the whole church, but this is what we're going to be addressing, is sexual immorality, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. When we say immorality, what do we mean by that? It's just really to engage in any sort of sexual sin either in thought or deed that is contrary to the word of God. Either a direct violation of a command or in principle to violate. You know, the Bible doesn't say thou shall not look at internet pornography, but there are principles which absolutely forbid it. The Greek word translated immorality in most Bibles is the word porneia, the word we get pornography from. It's just sexual sin, usually outside of marriage. If you know anything about the church of Corinth, you know it had lots of problems, especially in this area of immorality. As a matter of fact, they even coined a term to Corinthianize, was to engage in immoral activity. And in this book, Paul addresses many problems that this church has. In chapter 5, it starts out with immorality rebuke. There was a guy in the church and he wasn't, he was living in immorality. And the church thought they were being loving by just letting him live an immoral lifestyle and not rebuking him, not insisting that he repent, not removing him for an unrepentant lifestyle, living in immorality. And so Paul has to rebuke them for not rebuking the guy and removing him. In chapter 6, Paul addresses the folly of Christians suing one another before unbelievers. He then talks about the ungodly people not getting to heaven, but that the grace of Christ makes us, has been whatever we are. God changes us so that those sins which once dominated our lives no longer do so, and we become more and more transformed in the image of Christ through the gospel. And since immorality was so rampant at Corinth, Paul addresses it in verses 12 through 20 head on. And so it's a really great text to look at you know a lot of times when you look at at books and i've read some of them just directed at youth and purity there's a whole bunch of reasons that are often given that youth 
people should abstain from immorality. And what just eeks me is all the biblical reasons are oftentimes never even mentioned. I just think, man, this is at a Christian bookstore. Look at all these reasons. None of them are. There's not a verse on a single one of them. You know, you might get AIDS, you know. Uh, you might get a girl pregnant. You might feel guilty. Uh, it might ruin your chances of having a lasting marriage. And, you know, all these reasons. But what are the biblical reasons? What are the reasons God says to abstain? Those are the ones that we need to know about first and foremost. Those other reasons, but they aren't the biblical reasons. They aren't the ones that are really going to keep us from falling into that sin. So in this text, Paul gives 12. 12 reasons in these verses. So follow along as I read verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not but all but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee from immorality. Every other sin man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. All right, we're going to look at the first one mentioned in this section. Look at verse 12. Immorality isn't profitable. Paul begins, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. The all things, Paul isn't saying, listen, I can do anything I want. I can kill, murder, steal. He's not saying that. He's not saying, you know, because I'm an apostle, I've got got freedom to do anything I want. No, that would be lawlessness. Paul is saying all those things that are permitted in the word of God, I can do. I know my Christian liberties. I know the freedom of the things. I can do all things. But not all those things are profitable for me. The word profitable means expedient, useful, helpful, advantageous. You know, you may have the freedom to do something. You know, you're, you're 78 years old. You go to the fair. They have this gigantic crane set up. And if you want, you can go bungee jumping. Now, somebody comes up to you and says, sir, how would you like to go bungee jumping? Well, I'm 78 years old. Yeah, you could be like the oldest person who's ever done it. You see, it would be lawful to do it. It's within the possibility of something you could do. If you want your ankles torn off (laughs) and the rest of your insides to come out your nose. I mean... You realize, you know what? Though I could do that, that would not be profitable for me. And Paul's whole point here, as we get down and we'll see in the text, is that immorality is never profitable. 
never profitable. It's always wrong, always sinful, always harmful to our walk with the Lord. God made sexual pleasure to be joined within the bounds of marriage only. Only. You take it outside that context, what is created to be a good thing becomes a bad thing. A while back, I crashed my bike. Most of you know, I was in a sling for a while, but you know, broke some ribs, dislocated my shoulder, tore my rotator cuff. I'm telling you, I was in pain. So I went to the hospital and they said, we'll give you some morphine. I thought, oh, good. I mean, I was just like moaning like a, you know, a dog that had been run over. And I thought, oh, this is going to be good. They gave me a shot of morphine. Didn't help. And so I'm sitting there. I mean, it takes a while. Like maybe you missed. Maybe you like stuck it into my bone or something, you know. They said, we'll give you something stronger. So then they give me something stronger. It's like. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it still hurt, but I just didn't care. (laughs) I just didn't care. And it just kept me from like, you know, flipping like a tuna on the bench. You know, I just I could hold still there. I could breathe. I could relax. It was it was great for that purpose. Now, you give those same drugs to somebody who isn't hurting. It just whack them out. It just turn them into a, a looney tune. I mean, it would just waste them. You keep giving it to somebody like that, they instantly become addicted. And pretty soon, instead of pain being helped by the drug, the drug then becomes painful if you don't take it. The exact opposite happens, and what is, in a certain context, a good thing, becomes a bad thing in another context. Rat poison is good for killing rats, but not on your cereal. And so God creates certain things to be enjoyed in certain contexts. You take them outside the context, then they harm you. Now, they may still give you some pleasure, but they harm you. I want you to see how this is. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. And you know, if you've read Proverbs, that Proverbs has a lot of things to say about immorality as a matter of fact the first nine chapters were written to young men singles before they were being launched out in the world it's kind of a wisdom curriculum for young men and all the way through the book there are these warnings about the strange woman the adulterous woman the foreign woman the woman of folly she's described in a lot of different ways But what happens is Solomon in his wisdom often talks about the pleasure and says, yeah, these women can give you pleasure, but it's, there's a bait and hook principle. It's like the fish when it sees the little ball of cheese or the mouse, but it nibbles on the cheese, you know, it thinks, well, I'm getting a little free right before the iron bar comes down or the hook gets caught in its throat. And notice here in Proverbs five, verse three. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. There's the bait. Hi there, big fella. (laughs) A very smooth and sensual voice. Very seductively dressed. They go, that that looks good. Yeah, but then what about the hook? 
verse 4. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down, down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. Ow. Maybe, maybe that she doesn't look all that good after all. Look at chapter six, chapter six. He talks about, uh, this whole immorality thing. Let me see. Uh, look at verse 24. He talks about you receiving wisdom to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulterers. Notice She's always seducing people with her words. You are so handsome. You are so strong. You are so smart. Do not desire her beauty in her heart. She looks good on the outside. There is no doubt about it. Do not let her capture you with her eyelids. You know, I always kid around with Leah and say, yeah, just use your blue batters on them. For on the count of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulterous hunts for precious life. Yes, she has smooth speech. Yes, she is beautiful on the outside. Yes, her eyes are captivating. However, you get sucked into a relationship with a woman like that. You're reduced to a meal, a piece of bread like um, mm. later on says the, the the adulterous woman eats and wipes her mouth. Done with that one. Verse 32, look down there. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will not be blotted out. For jealously enrages a man he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied that you give him any gifts. You commit adultery and the husband finds out he's going to kill you. But if you pay him, he's going to kill you. If you bribe him, he's going to kill you. If you're going to run away, he'll hunt you down. It's like, oh, maybe that, yeah, that's right. I should probably think of that. And the whole, the whole chapter seven is about this. Look at verse, chapter nine, verse 13. Here she's called the woman of folly. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. Notice she's clueless. She doesn't even know. She sits at the door of her house and by the seat of the highway and on the internet crying out. It's, it's in there in the Hebrew Calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, and her guests are in the depths of Sheol, or hell. There is serious consequences to immorality, and that's why it's not profitable, ever. Thomas Watson said, who would be so foolish as to trade a drop of pleasure for a sea of wrath? And the answer is anyone who lives an immoral lifestyle. That's who. They're taking a drop of pleasure for the sea of wrath. And it's not worth it. It's not profitable. Well, that is the first biblical reason. And we have to stop here because time has run out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Your word, which addresses these things, Father, we just want to come before you this morning and beg you to help 
help us to protect our children, protect our youth, to protect our singles. We pray that just for those who, who you have brought to us out of the world who have already plunged themselves into these various sins, oh, Father, help us to minister to them, to love them, to lead them to Christ, to show them the meaning of life, to show them how to find joy and peace and happiness apart from sinful indulgence. Father, I pray for Calvary Bible Church that we would be a rescue station for those being swept away in the storm of wickedness that is all around us and that as we rescue people, we would keep the water out of our boat while getting the people in. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in holiness before you. Father, that we would see those singles that you have given us as treasures and precious people created in the image of God who need help and encouragement and motivation, Father, that we would minister to them, that they might be encouraged for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. Father, help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.